If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. From the first, from the gospel according to Matthew, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. When I was a little kid, I was maybe four or five or six years old, and I remember hearing this section of the Sermon on the Mount read in church. I also remember reading it from a children's Bible, not one of those children's Bibles that's just like 40 Bible stories that every child should know, but the whole Bible for children that my godparents had given me. For a child to hear these words, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell is puzzling. And I'm sure for some, traumatic. Throughout the last 20 centuries, there have been those who took those verses literally, cutting off a hand or cutting out an eye or worse, some other rather tempting body part. They were insane. At a certain point, one grows up and becomes a bit and gains a bit of sophistication in reading these texts and decides that it's probably best to keep the eye, probably best to keep your hand. Surely Jesus must mean something more, more figurative. Surely he must mean that we should exercise great care in our entanglements with this world, not allowing ourselves to be taken in by adultery or theft or the temptations to do those things. Surely by saying cutting it off, cut it off and throw it away when referring to the hand or by pluck it out and throw it away when, re when referring to the eye, he must mean distancing ourselves from temptation. This has the trouble of operating in the other extreme. If the literal interpretation is insane, then so must be the one that dismisses it as mere harsh speech. I would say that neither of these passes a very important test, which is namely this, what does the text actually say? On inspection, we find that Jesus is not speaking to individuals, but to a group, those gathered about him in Galilee to hear this sermon, to hear him teach upon the law. This was, in short, a rabbinic duty to teach upon the law, to expound upon the law. It's what everyone gathered there expected. But where the rabbis of Jesus' day would expound to the letter, Jesus expounds upon the law as its giver. The word that day was given to the plural, to a nation. And one of the weaknesses of English is that our second persons sound identical. You and you. Except, of course, in Texas, where we know better. <laughs> now, I was raised by Midwesterners, so you'll have to forgive me this. If I get the words wrong... It's just to illustrate how it would have sounded to those hearers. And you Texans can get this. Y'all have heard it was said, y'all shall not commit adultery. But I say to y'all that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If y'all's right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if y'all's right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that y'all lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Do you see the difference? Jesus is speaking of a body, namely of his body, the church. And he is giving direction to that body as to what they should do in the case of scandal. 
in the case of what is simply in Greek, scandalos, but which means a stumbling block, something that you trip over. This is not some kind of moralizing or a directive to maim the body, body hardly so. I must say, as, a, as an aside, that Christians have always opposed direct bodily mutilation. One may undertake what is called indirect bodily mutilation, such as an amputation or a removal of an organ for the sake of preserving one's life. If you have gangrene, you should cut off the gangrenous part. If you have a cancerous organ, you should have it removed, possibly replaced. But Christians understand that to mutilate the body directly and intentionally for any purpose even that of avoiding sin is immoral. It is expressive of a belief that we are sovereign over our, that God is sovereign over our own bodies. To leave the body alone, to maim the body is an offense against, against God's mastery over our bodies. In essence, mutilation of the body is a form of murder. When it comes to the church and Jesus speaking of the church, there are times. And we must all be aware of this when for the sake of discipline and the health of the body, for the sake of avoiding all appearance of scandal, certain members must be cut off, some for a time, some till they repent, some even permanently. Now just the same, when sinners have come to the health of repentance, they must not be cut off. They no longer give offense, no longer cause temptation, no longer cause scandal. Here the emphasis is upon healthy relations between member, believers as members of the church, and this is why Jesus says, make peace, be reconciled. Because the church, at the end of the day, shows forth, mirrors forth, the mystery of the incarnation. God and man made one. And when we show forth nothing but division and scandal, it's a scandal to the world and it's a scandal to ourselves. So Jesus commands that if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that a brother has something against you, or not, not that you have something against your brother, but that your brother has something against you, the remedy is to be reconciled to the brother first and then make the offering. All of this is set up to avoid the breakdown of the communion and fellowship of Christ's church, to warn members of the body against becoming murderous, of lopping off perfectly good members, of mutilating the body of Christ. As we read in 1 Corinthians today, some of you say, I follow Paul, or I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos. They are cutting off members of the body, creating these divisions, and it's scandalous. But Jesus, and it was excluded from today's text, calls upon his hearers to make friends with their accusers. Jesus is commending to us the understanding that we are corporately liable for each other and therefore each of us liable to correction. We can't say with Cain, am I my brother's keeper? You belong to your brother. We need each other. And he calls his church at the end of this section to make our no, no, and our yes, yes. Have you ever tried this? Just say, I'm going to say yes or no. This is another good thing that Texan children are raised to do, to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir, and that's it. It's very hard, though, as you get older. It's, hard, it's harder and harder as you mature to say yes or no. We like to hedge our bets in our speech and sometimes say two things at the same time. 
It's what nice people do. But Jesus is saying that we must be single-minded in our pursuit of holiness, in our pursuit of the truth, not just as individuals, but as a body. And later in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18, he gives similar admonitions and then gives specific instructions. These words sound familiar, but they're many, many, many chapters later. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, he says, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the man by whom the temptations come. And if your hand causes your, and your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame with two hands than with two hands or two feet to be thrown in the, into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And then he gives these instructions. If your brother sins against you, and you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's a wonderful gift being given to the church, this perspective of binding and loosing. The church has the power to bind sinners into her fellowship, while at the same time having the power to loose sinners from her fellowship. We can turn to the Corinthian correspondence to see the most prominent examples of this in the New Testament. In chapter 5, Paul draws attention to the immorality rampant among the members of the church in Corinth, even a man who is living with his father's wife. And he pronounces judgment, and this would seem harsh to modern readers, and it is harsh. He calls upon the church to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. But in chapter 12, he calls for these factions to come to an end. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So which is it, Paul? Is it permitted to cut off part of Christ's body, the church, or not? And the simple answer is this, that for those who repent, for those who turn to the Lord in repentance, they are very much to be preserved within the household of the church. But for those who persist in scandalous sin, they must be cut off, and never for the sake of spite or hatred, but always for the health of the body, and even that those who have caused scandal might be restored. Because this is the thing that we must understand. Skin, sinful scandal and scandalous sin are cancers upon the church and her witness. When there are those in the church who cause others to sin, they are acting as members of Christ's body, and in doing so, they give cause for others to say precisely what we read in Ecclesiasticus today, because of the Lord, I left the right way. Because of the Lord, I left the right way. And when the church's witness is to sin and division and license, you cannot blame an unbelieving world for thinking that is what God is for. A lack of discipline in the church, as many have scandalously departed from Christian orthodoxy, is causing many to say this very thing. Because of the Lord, I have departed from biblical faith. I have grown up and left it all behind. 
Why do they do it? Because Christians do it with license. Because of the Lord, I have walked away from my marriage. I was told I could do it. Or because of the Lord, I have even maimed my body so as to align it with my perception as to who I really am. And guess what? This church or that told me, go for it. Sounds like a good idea to me. Because of the Lord, I left the right way. But the Lord does not tempt human beings to sin ever. The problem today is that we are quick to shun even the penitent while excusing those who persist in other more acceptable sins. We live in a society in which members are regularly and brutally canceled for their sins. And even when they repent, even when they take responsibility for their faults, they are canceled, they are put out of the public square. It is considered scandalous for them to even speak. All this while there are others who are embraced who scandalously advocate for all manner of evil from within the church without any discipline whatsoever. This is hypocrisy of the worst sort and it is a horrible witness to the world. The church must be patient and merciful to the penitents and firm with those who persist in causing scandal. If you're ever sitting in the pews and you get bored during a service like this, you can turn to page 143 of the Book of Common Prayer. This has been in every Book of Common Prayer that's ever been produced. It's an exhortation to the church, and it says simply this. You can open to it now. It's page 143. This will be fun. If the priest knows that a person who is living a notoriously evil life intends to come to communion, the priest shall privately instruct that person not to come to the Lord's table until he or she has given clear proof of repentance and amendment of life. The priest shall follow the same procedure with those who have done wrong to their neighbors and are a scandal to the other members of the congregation, not allowing such persons to receive communion until they have made restitution for the wrong they have done. When the priest sees that there is enmity between members of the congregation, the priest shall speak privately to each of them, telling them that they may not receive communion until they have forgiven each other. And if the person or persons on one side truly forgive the others and desire and promise has been made up as to make up for their faults, but those on the other side refuse to give, the priest shall allow those who are penitent to come to communion, but, those, but not those who are obstinate. And then within two weeks, the priest has to call up the bishop and let him know why. Because the bishop is the defender of the discipline and doctrine of the church. He has responsibility for it. I'm so thankful I don't bear that responsibility. It's the bishop's job. Now I say all of this. This is very unpopular preaching, by the way. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I say all of this this morning to highlight as we come into the season of Lent, one of the themes of that season which often gets lost in the shuffle, and that is the church's collective and common practice of discipline. In the ancient church, Lent was not only a time for the catechumens, those who were preparing for baptism to prepare through fasting and prayer and almsgiving, but for notorious sinners to be reconciled to the body through prayer and fasting. Imagine this, you've committed some horrible, public, scandalous sin, and you show up here on a Sunday and I say, here's your sackcloth dress, here are some ashes, go to the doors of the church and wail and beat your breast. That's your job. And they would literally do this. Um, there are 
ancient accounts that say you could hear the wailing of the penitent from outside the doors of the church. All through Lent. They would weep for their sins. And on the eve of the Easter feast, they would make public confession and be reconciled, embraced by the bishop himself. Not just to receive communion yet again, but to be embraced by the community of believers, not just with a hug, but with a holy kiss. That is historically how the sacrament of penance was practiced before it became private. One of the great legends of how private confession came into being is that St. Patrick, knowing how much the Irish loved a public row, determined that confession should be made in private and the sinner restored. You can imagine the kind of fistfights the Irish would have without that. But as a sign of solidarity with sinners and catechumens, the faithful would enter into this same time of fasting and prayer, 40 days long, putting ashes on their head to begin this time. Because one of the teachings of the church that is so important is that we all bear collective responsibility for sin, no matter how weighty our own sins are. We all bear a burden for sin. We bear it as one body. And as you prepare for Lent, I want to urge you to take this reality of the church's identity seriously. That there are those who have sinned and sinned scandalously within this church who are attempting to make amends, who are receiving the gift of God for repentance. And we're all in the same boat. If you have in any way scandalized the church internally or publicly, in word or deed, and finding yourself unable to obtain the relief of your conscience, it is time for confession, time to be reconciled. You do it not only for yourself, but for the church as a whole. If you have a quarrel with your brother or sister and you can make peace, then do so. Not for your own sake, but for the sake of the body. I want to urge everyone here to take full responsibility for your actions. If you're attempting to be reconciled to God while blaming others for your faults and predicaments, you won't get very far. Something that's very common today is, I, I really hate what I've become, but if she would just, it's terrible. Or I really don't like how things are, but if, if he would just stop doing this thing. But if in humility and joy, the joy of Christian communion and fellowship, you can open yourself to be reconciled, seeking the peace which passes all understanding, then do so. Don't waste another minute. You might be sitting here this morning in your pew, very comfortable, and saying something like this, it's so great to not be in a state of serious sin. Something like, I thank thee, Lord, that I am not like other men. No, you don't get to do that either. The Christian, even the holiest of saints, will feel nothing but compassion for sinners who repent. Will see their repentance as their own repentance. And when they repent, they will join in the heavenly rejoicing. And they will exercise as their Christian duty a solidarity with the whole church in the work of repentance, considering the sins of the body to be their sins. Considering the suffering of the body to be their suffering. Considering the spiritual burden of temptation, their 
temptation. Lent is not a time for individual spiritual disciplines. Lent is a time for discipline for the whole church that our witness may flourish and that we may become what we have been made to be, a people suffused with the glory of God. So as we are 10 days out from Lent, I want to give three simple directions. The first is that of a corporate fast across the whole church. When the church fasts, we exhibit interior conversion of life, conversion of our own life and that of the church's life, conversion with regard to ourselves. We learn through fasting to be reconciled to God and reconciled to our neighbor. And not only that, but reconciled internally. The second is almsgiving, which expresses conversion of life with regard to our neighbor. Our neighbors can be perplexing, they can be difficult, they can even be scandalously difficult. They can do all manner of things that we disapprove of. They can even be a thorn in our side, such as when they have loud parties at night. But when we regard the poverty of our neighbor with compassion instead of judgment, we are changed into the likeness of God. Third, and most important, is prayer. Prayer which expresses interior conversion toward God. Lenten discipline begins and ends in prayer. Prayer feeds the interior life of the church as well as our witness to our neighbor. And in the end, it is prayer for which we are made to live a life as a people of constant appeal to God the Father, not only for our own good, but for the good of others, joining ourselves to Jesus Christ in his prayers as he leads the whole church into the very presence of the living God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.